You are this country's first openly gay prime minister. How big a deal is this for you personally? Brexit price. U.S. investment bank Lehman Brothers collapsed. I said this was a once in a generation a vote. financial crisis. But I believe we have voted today for the next generation. Don't be rude. Ireland has spoken with a clear, strong voice. I think I should stop now and start again, because I don't think you this is a good news. start of the debate. Welcome to the Dublin Law and Politics Review podcast, in which we discuss current political events. My name is Annalika Moy, and with me today is Dr. Sophie Doherty, with whom I'll be discussing law and art. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe or find us on social media via at DublinLPR or on our website DublinLPR.ie. This podcast will furthermore be aired on Swatch Radio Navi, Mumbai and Galway's Ferdinand. So welcome, Sophie. Hello, Horace, everyone. I'm well, thank you. So. In your research, you focus on law and art. Could you explain what that means? Yeah, so basically I come from quite um, a conventionally legal background in terms of my academic career. So very much looking towards undergraduate law, then a master's in law and then a PhD in law. But throughout my kind of experience as undergraduate, I began to get really interested in art. So what I look at now is the relationship between law and art. And basically how we can use law and art in conversation with one another to kind of investigate legal issues, particularly the issues I look at is uh, sexual violence. Okay, so that sounds very interesting. So what can we learn when we study law and art? So I think that particularly from my understanding of the relationship between law and art is that when we look towards art, art is basically an alternative way of communicating ideas. And often when we're looking at art, we kind of get an understanding of political, social and legal ideas. Uh, and again, that's across time. It's not just a recent phenomenon. So in particular, as I said, that my research looks at sexual violence. So I began looking at the work of Artemisia Gentileschi, specifically the story of Suzanne and the Elders. And I did an analysis of how her representation of the narrative um, was done differently to that of her contemporary male counterparts. So for me, what I learned from that is that a woman artist represented rape differently than her counterparts. That was my kind of central argument. And that's also something that I'm working on at the moment. Um, and the elders remind me, what was the story of that again? Yeah, so basically this was, to kind of put it into a very summarised brief version, it is again a story that very much involves uh, themes of sexual violence. So within this story, you have Susanna who was kind of the wife of an established person um, within society and essentially one day she was in the back garden bathing with her um, maids and there were two elders that were kind of um, friendly with her husband that were spying on her and essentially they kind of um, approached Susanna and said look we, we, we want you to have sex with us if you do that we won't let it on or if you don't have sex with us well then we will tell everybody that you did anyway and so again, the kind of penalties for adultery at that time would have been the person being put to death. So quite heavy sanctions attached to that. So within this story, um, Susanna basically rejects the advances of the elders. But what's really interesting um, is around the Baroque period in art. So um, this is where you really have representations of the story coming forward. And in a lot of the representations, you can see Susanna's painted in quite a seductive fashion. Whereas with, when you look at Artemisia Gentileschi's representation, she is painted as very much in disgust at what's going on, so clearly rejecting. And for me, this is really important because 
Artemisia Gentileschi was herself a victim of sexual violence. So again, this is something that's widely kind of discussed and reported on in academic literature. And also um, you can see the script and the transcript of the trial in the National Gallery in London at the moment. So I went to that exhibition last month and it was absolutely fantastic. You can see Suzanne and the Elders, which is situated then alongside the transcript. And you can literally see the handwritten script where she screams, I vero, I vero, I vero, in Italian, which is, it's true, it's true, it's true. So again, it's very interesting to have the painting of Suzanne and the Elders alongside Artemisia Gentileschi's own transcript. And for me, it, when we kind of bring law and order into conversation here, what you really see is that you literally have the law in conversation with the art in that exhibition. So very interesting. Well, in, in my opinion, it's interesting. <laughs> no, it, it sounds very interesting. So we have this, this book, this transcript of the story of Susanna and the Elders next to this, this visual interpretation of the, the painter. It's, it's, it's the actual, the transcript that you have is the transcript of Artemisia's own trial of sexual violence. So this is basically where the courts have recorded um, the transcript throughout the trial process, including when Artemisia Gentileschi herself was tortured. So that's kind of the textual legal document that you have beside the painting then of the story of Suzanne and the Elders. So you literally have the artist's own experience of sexual violence recorded in the transcript alongside her representation of the story of Suzanne and the Elders. So it's kind of painting from lived experience, if you want to say that. It does sound indeed like a painting from lived experience. Yes, so what is this relationship with law and art? Is it first the law and then the art, or is it vice versa? So I think that when, basically within my research, I kind of, for me, it's, it's, it's worked in different ways. So I might see a painting and then I might be inspired to write a piece of literature or vice versa. I might come across a piece of um, legal scholarship and then think about how we can use art to kind of work through these issues. So with the um, my first kind of exploration into law and art, which was Artemisia Gentileschi, I was sitting in a art class in Virginia. So I got a year studying um, Byzantine Impressionist art in uh, Ferrum College. And because I had come from two years undergraduate law at Queen's University, going over to America, sitting in this art class, the things that we had studied in criminal law, for example, rape myths, were always in the back of my mind because I was always interested in feminist uh, jurisprudence and criminal law. And then when I began to see the representations in art, I was like, wow, these, these legal issues are taken up in visual representation. So that's kind of how the relationship between law and art arose in that instance. Um, so again, maybe it is more, for me, law, legal issues, and then seeing something in art that inspires a discussion. Um, that's very much what happened in my uh, PhD research. So again, I found this theory, or well, I should say I found, my supervisor, Professor Claire McGlynn, wrote this um, kind of piece with Nicole Westmoreland on kaleidoscopic justice. And when we're kind of thinking about what kaleidoscopic justice is, it's the basic theory that justice is different for different people, particularly for victim survivors of sexual violence. So it's not always punitive punishment that um, a victim survivor may want. It could be voice, it could be acknowledgement, validation. But yes, some victim survivors of sexual violence will want um, accountability through, for example, the criminal justice sentencing. But when I kind of discovered kaleidoscopic justice, through Claire McGlynn, I went, oh my God, right? What if we look towards art to understand what justice means for victim survivors? 
And that's kind of where my next body of research developed. So I suppose for me, the relationship thus far for me has been law as the issue and then discovering or having those kind of like moments of inspiration from art that then develop my ideas of law further. So again, I wouldn't say it's necessarily art then law or law then art. It's always this idea about them being in conversation with each other. Now, if I listen to you, you talk about this story with Susanna and law is, of course, very nitty gritty quite often. It's it's Mm -hmm. written down in words. It's usually in complicated words. Whilst this painting, which reflects Susanna and the elders, but also reflects the artist's own experience with uh, sexual assault or a rape trial. Mm -hmm. Do you think that art could be used to help explain law and help visualize it to more people? Yes, and I am delighted that you kind of asked that question because that's exactly what I'm doing in my jurisprudence lectures at the minute. Um, So jurisprudence is notoriously difficult. Like I'm sure anybody that's ever studied legal theory sitting there just getting like PTSD at the flashbacks of Hart and Fuller and Dworkin. But for me, when you kind of, you have these concepts, very textual, very dense. But what I've started to do is incorporate artworks that explain the differences between different theories. So One of the recent ones we've looked at is the School of Athens by Raphael. And within that, you can kind of see Plato and Aristotle as central figures. So for me, I can use these kind of figures with like Plato looking up to the sky, wearing kind of ethereal colours to illustrate the fact that he believed in this kind of more ethereal universal concept of law, whereas Aristotle kind of points towards the ground or points downwards, which again relates to his idea about natural law being among us and observable and teleological. So I think for me that we can use art, yes, to better understand legal issues, because again, it helps to translate the textual into the visual. And for me, the visual is more often than not accessible or more accessible than the textual materials. I think it's really interesting that you took this example of Plato and Aristotle. I think most of us know that painting with the two fingers indeed pointing up and pointing down in their discussion in the forum, I think it said. Now, it's interesting, you teach law right now in modern day, but you use this painting that's centuries old. Is law or is art reflecting something that, is it a timepiece? Do we distinguish between times or is it something that's everlasting? I think that particularly using the uh, example of the School of Raphael, I think that that would kind of be a timeless classic. So it would transcend it's temporal period when we're thinking about what those what Plato and Aristotle were saying. So again, you kind of have them situated in this art piece, and I think that we could always use that to study, um, or or to critique their different philosophies. But I think that what your the question is very interesting because at the minute there is now a debate, and that was kind of progressed by Professor Desmond Manderson, who, by the way, I put on record is an absolute legend, uh, one of the most inspirational people I've ever read and had the pleasure of meeting um, at a conference on law and art in Perth. Um, Desmond Manderson has recently recently written a book about law, time and art. And he puts forward these different theories about art. Is it necessarily we shouldn't be thinking about art existing within time, but that art is temporal, so we can understand time subjectively. So it is quite a dense reading and law and art is complicated. Law, art and time is a whole new ballgame, even for myself, but having the pleasure of reviewing it for two different journals, it's really helped my understanding of law, the relationship between law, art and time. And for me, I would always think that when we are writing about law and art, it is important to give art its contextualization 
yes, we need to talk about how, where the art comes from, what period it existed in, what were the conventions, but then also talk about then why we're using that to explain the legal issues. So again, always addressing the limitations and also the lens that we're putting on the study of art. Now, this, this limitations, I want to dive a little bit more into that, because when you talked about uh, the artist of Susanna and the Elders, that was a very different painting because Susanna was disgusted. Now, we can relate very much to that, to the Me Too movement of today, where we see the female perspective or the victim perspective, perhaps, versus that, the people who are more the aggressors. Mm -hmm. Now, it's interesting to see how those two compare, but I do wonder, is everyone in society, and especially in different time periods, is it always a good reflection of society? Because art is expensive. Could everyone afford to convey this in art? Well, again, great question. And I think that this is a key idea, that this is something that I take up in my own research, that law and art are exclusive practices. And I think as well that there are, we're kind of looking at who, who has a voice in law and who has a voice in art. Again, it is very much dictated by a canon. And that canon, especially in the Western, um, Western liberal democracies, is this idea about pale, male and stale. So again, it's usually white middle class men who are kind of dictating um, what's happening in law and in art. So those people who maybe fall outside of that, and I should also clarify, cis men. So it's this idea then that any kind of other voices along the way might not have had equal opportunity or access to having their voice heard in law and art and therefore to have their voices represented. But that's why for me, it's so important to think about those voices that maybe didn't have a platform and to look through artistic records and see where we can kind of pick up on those excluded or marginalized voices and try and learn more, perhaps not just from text, but then from the visual references also. So I would very much say that yes, law and art are exclusive practices, but again, the limitation on that is that, that well, the limitation in studying that is it needs to be recognized. And, and do you think that that is changing perhaps over time? If we look at modern art, uh, art has become a lot more accessible and there's a lot more people producing different types of art, um, paintings, sculptures, paintings based on, on real life, paintings that are more abstract. Mm -hmm. Is this changing the, the amount of art and the reflections of art on law? Um, I think that in terms of kind of one of the big changes that happened about how we can use art to reflect on law, particularly within my area, the, the main kind of change that happened was definitely the 1970s feminist movement, um, particularly in the northern kind of northern states. So this is where you'd be looking at the, like the color, well, I say northern, north of America. Um, the Californian arts movements, so the Cali arts movements, um, was a big driver in how we kind of talked about or represented art differently on the theme of sexual violence. So, yes, I think it did change. The extent to which the discussions have changed, again, would be perhaps a question more towards um, feminist art history. So, yes, discussions have changed, but perhaps who we're still seeing in museums hasn't maybe changed that much because again when you walk into the museum you usually do see a lot of the old masters work um particularly when we're like looking at some of the more established museums but then we are seeing in contemporary societies as well different types of museums opening that do perhaps cater to more audiences and that maybe do include maybe less well-known artists and maybe more marginalized voices which is great but it's interesting to note that these kind of voices are maybe operating within different spheres outside of those kind of standard museums that we may be more familiar with. 
Okay. Now, you mentioned the feminist society. Could you elaborate a little bit more? Like, what kind of art have they produced? Yeah, so some of the artwork has names that might not be suitable for the radio. So I'll have to kind of think through some examples that don't refer to bodily parts, let me think. So, yeah, so when we're kind of looking at, um, say, for example, a stat- Suzanne and the Elders as an example. So when we're looking at Suzanne and the Elders, that story was historically sexualized. So there was kind of a, a, this trend within art history to always kind of think towards more like the sexualizations of victims, survivors of sexual violence. Or, but then when you see in the 1970s feminist movements, they almost reclaim the female body. So this is something that's talked about within um, a lot of discussion on like Yoko Ono's cut piece. Um, and also, for example, when you're looking at embodiment, the theme of embodiment, i.e. lived experience and, and actual representations of the body in the artwork of, for example, Suzanne Lacey. So Suzanne Lacey did a piece um, in collaboration with other artists, including Judith Chicago, and she did a piece on sexual violence called Ablutions. So this piece was naked women that were walking about being covered in blood, eggs and clay, while in the background a voice recording of the transcript of an interview with seven victim survivors of sexual violence played in the background. Um, And at the end, it kept repeating the phrase, I felt so helpless, all I could do was cry. So very emotive and very poignant. And again, what you begin to see is the 1970s feminist movement helped represent sexual violence differently. So that's what the feminist art movement did for sexual violence. And if anybody's kind of interested in reading on that more, there's actually a new book that's come out, Nancy Printhenhall's um, book on women, art and sexual violence in the 1970s. So what I hope to do, again, I'm reviewing that book for another journal, But from this, I think this will be really helpful in terms of me navigating how feminism has taken up the theme of sexual violence differently. And I would definitely encourage anybody else that's interested in this area to to kind of grab a copy of that book. Okay, so Nancy, you said Nancy. Yep, Nancy Prinsenthal. So the book is called Unspeakable Acts. Unspeakable Acts, Nancy Prinsenthal. And what are some other must-read books for law and art? Okay, so I literally have my bookshelf beside me. So one of the first, like I'm reviewing a lot of these books for journals. So if anybody's um, interested in kind of getting a sneak or an insight into these books, have a look at some of the publications I'll be releasing shortly. But one of the ones that I'm involved in a, a network called Art Law Network, and it's kind of an international group of practitioners, theorists, academic, anybody that's interested in law and art. And they've basically released a book called Art Law and Power. So this is by Lucy Finchett Maddock and Alefa Lacassis. Um, yeah, Lacascus. So that's one that I would definitely be recommending people reading, especially in the current context now, where we are maybe more critically unpicking the relationship between law and power. Another classic would be Law and Aesthetics by Adam Geary. One that I picked up recently would be Peter Goodrich's Legal Emblems and the Art of Law. And then I've also got some other books. Again, one of the key essential ones I do recommend is Law and the Image by Costas Ducinas and Linda Mead. I could go on and on. Again, what I will probably say How is... How about what, you may, uh, what is your plan for law and art for the future? What are you currently working on? Well, my plan, well I'm working on a book at the minute, trying to get that turned into a monograph. So I'm currently in conversation with a couple of publishers about different books. Um, so the first one that I'll be kind of working on developing as a monograph is um, my PhD thesis turned into a book. And this is where I kind of put forward my original contribution in the field, which is a theory called justice through expression. So it builds on um, Professor Cromagan and Nicole Westmoreland's theory of kaleidoscopic justice. 
and basically argues that if voice is a justice interest, we can extend that to include expression as a justice interest. So if anybody's interested in that, fingers crossed we get that book contract shortly, everybody. <laughs> We'd be um, happy to review it for the journal. Oh, that would be amazing. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you so much. Um, so that's kind of the, the big book plan for me. And then also working on um, establishing the first kind of col collaborative and collective group of feminist academics working in the field of law and art or law and the humanities more broadly. So I'm trying to um, access some funding for that. And then what that would lead to basically is the creation of the network. But also um, we have had some offers of book contracts. So if anybody's interested in joining that network, please do feel free to hit me up and hopefully we can work towards getting out an edited collection at some point. So those are my kind of book plans. But other than that, working on a lot of different book reviews and then working on my own publications um, and some collaborative publications as well with members of staff at DCU. Um, so particularly looking at working with Marcus Diaz and then outside of DCU, a collaborative piece with Benjamin Thorne. So, yes, he's part of the kind of transitional justice group. So trying to bring together as many people as we can to develop law and art and that kind of network more broadly. OK, it sounds like very interesting plans for the future. And I hope you succeed because it's a very interesting topic. Thank you. And that's, that's it. Is it. What does it say? The mice and men, the best said plans of mice and men after go aglay. But hoping that I can kind of keep on the track and uh, just to, to really build up the kind of Irish voices in particular as well within the kind of law and art circles because we are seeing great work being done in England so we kind of but again Maria Denwright's over in Birmingham but she's very much one of the Irish voices to look out for too um, she's done really interesting work on abortion law and art um, so really trying to build up our voices because we do have quite a strong contingent in England um, to include the Scottish Feminist Judgments academics so that would be um, Chloe Kennedy, Sharon Cohen and Vanessa Monroe. And then also we have the kind of the, the Australian academics. So we've got Des Manderson and Alison Young, or I think Alison Young's actually from Scotland. But the key thing is, is we really want to promote Irish research, Irish humanities as well, and to kind of get that voice out there. So that's kind of my goal, um, not only to bring the Irish voices to the fore within this research, but to bring them into conversation with all these other different jurisdictions and voices. So. Yeah, really hoping to try and get everybody again in conversation. I think that's the key thing about law and art. We all need to be in conversation with one another to kind of progress the field and make it the, the, the kind of strong academic area that it deserves. It sounds very ambitious plans, but um, it, it sounds like a very good ambitions plan, ambitious plan. And I hope you succeed. Um, we are running out of time, but thank you so much for joining us today. No, no problem. I've really, really enjoyed it. And thank you so much, John, as well, Annalika and Shona, for giving me the opportunity today to come along. It's been great chatting to us. Uh, again, I could probably talk for another four hours on this, but if anybody has any other questions, please do feel free to get in touch with me. Lovely. And thank you, everyone, for listening to the Dublin Law and Politics Review podcast on Law and Art. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media via at Dublin LPR. Comments, questions and suggestions are very welcome via contact at DublinLPR.ie. This was Annalika Moy and I wish you a very pleasant day.